We can go on killing each other for another 50 or 60 years. Or we can begin a model that allows us to share space together. So in reality, the Good Friday Agreement was a masterpiece in political compromise. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for this throwback God Squad program about rethinking conflict in our community with very special guest, Reverend Dr. Gary Mason, a Methodist minister who spent years working to bring peace to Northern Ireland. So we're excited to share this with you because Dr. Gary's insights and wisdom can really help us as we wrestle with our own divisions here in America. This program was presented in partnership with Leon County Government and WFSU Public Media. It was actually recorded in WFSU's studio three years ago in March of 2018 on the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which ended most of the violence related to the Troubles in Northern Ireland. After we hear from Dr. Gary, four God Squad panelists will join the discussion. And facilitating this program is God Squad regular Betsy Willette Zirden. Now, before we let Betsy introduce Dr. Gary, we have a surprise for you. Liz Joyner, Village Square's founder and CEO, is joining us for a quick little chat about a book we're recommending to all of our listeners. And we talk about how that book is related to the program that we're going to air for you today with Dr. Gary. And there's a reason we think you should read this book now. We'll tell you all about that when we reveal surprise number two in just a minute. And by the way, this part with Liz is fresh content recorded just a couple of days ago and only available right here on Village Squarecast. So let's bring in Liz. Hi, Liz. How are you? Great, Vanessa. How about you? Good. So Liz, you uh, suggested this little chat and I love that you did. And now that I am one third into the book that we're going to talk about, and I have also listened to this whole program that we're about to air, I can see exactly why you said we need to do these two things together. We need to have this little little chat about this fantastic book that we're going to talk about ahead of this God Squad program, because they really are so related. I've gotten a lot out of both, and I, I'm excited to talk to you about it today. So we're here, we're going to talk about the book called High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out by Amanda Ripley. And so let's start, can you just tell us a little bit about this book, why it's important to you, and why we should all read this book? So I've been a big fan of Amanda's work since uh, before High Conflict came out. And she is the, she's a journalist. She is the originator of a concept called complicating the narrative in journalism, but also works for us real people as well. And the idea is when you're in a very high conflict situation, which is foundationally different than just sort of the regular kind of healthy conflicts that you have to have 
with people as we go through life, um, that there are sort of different roles. And one of, one of the ideas that she had is that when we are, you know, high conflict essentially simplifies the narrative, right? It turns things into two-dimensional. Us and them, we see you only for one of your character traits. For Reverend Dr. Mason, he talks about, you know, the Northern Ireland conflict. Um, so it may be where you're from in, in America today. It's whether you're a liberal or conservative. You see that one part of, of somebody and that's it. And in a way, journalism works that way, too, in that they tell a story. They say, well, these people think this and these people think that. But they don't, they simplify the narrative. They don't complicate it. And so what about, what are, what are the... What is what is the paragraph level conversation about what these people think and why? What what are the human things about them? What are the variants in each group of people? Right, because we're all uh, we don't just uh, simplify down to us versus them. We're all very complicated. So I just love the idea of complicating the narrative, and I think it's an incredibly important part of what the Village Square does, and really helpful for all of us as we face situations like this. Um, the other thing I love about Amanda's work is uh, the notion that you we need to ask questions. When we're in a high conflict situation, I don't think that questions naturally really come out, right? Because really you want to argue, want to say, well, no, you're factually wrong. And that almost never works. But if you ask questions, if you make inquiries, if you you know, if you if you think about, say, you know, maybe ask the question, what is oversimplified about this concept or conflict? What do you want to understand about the other side? What would it feel like if you woke up and this problem were solved? What is the question no one is asking? Where do you feel torn? And just tell me more, right? So, you know, when if you're talking even to a um, family member who disagrees with you, idea that you would engage with questions is kind of novel. Right. That is so interesting. It makes so much sense. And especially just the way that she lays it all out there. She just does a fantastic job of like, explaining why we how we are this way, why we do the things that we do. And also, you know, also how we got into the situation, you know, that, that we're all feeling with this whole us versus them. It feels like everything is that and um, it was, I love how she talks about adversarialism versus unity and about how our modern systems are set up for adversarialism. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And it's interesting because I think another ba basic foundation of the way that we operate are sort of enlightenment values of, you know, the idea that you argue different sides against the other, sort of the debate club model. And, and there's a lot that's good that comes out of it. But something interesting that we learned from Dr. Mason when he was here three years ago, it was very meaningful to have a guest who was very foundational and important in the Good Friday Agreement. And one of the things we learned about that time is that in significant high conflict, very often Diving right into the conflict in that adversarial way is actually not useful because it isn't, you know, the conflict kind of has a life of its own and it's more about us versus them than about the ideas or the actual content. 
you know, like they say that if you argue about ta- who takes out the garbage with your spouse for longer than five minutes, it's not about the garbage anymore. Right. And so it's, that, it's sort of that kind of thing. So what they actually did both heading into and after the Good Friday Agreement was they kind of dropped the conversations about the disagreement and instead they did things together community building kind of activities. They built community centers. They strung Christmas lights up. They, they, they just sort of were human side by side. And that's actually one of the, you know, central concepts of how you bridge division, which is that you have a common purpose and the common purpose can be stringing Christmas lights. And it, and it changes the way that you see the people that you're working beside. Right. It's so important and it's so different than what we're doing so often these days. And it's interesting when I talk to people about working for you at the Village Square and, you know, sometimes the gut reaction is like, oh, I don't want to talk about politics. And I'm like, no, it's the opposite of what you're used to. Like so many of the conversations pretty much, you know, us versus them when everybody each side has to win. And this is completely different. And I love how she breaks all that down and, and shows you a different way. There can be a different path. And it reminds me so much of the Village Square's work. Like we're, we're human together first. Let's find ways to connect. And let's try to move forward down this path, you know, in a way where we understand each other and we learn from each other and we compromise and find common ground just about the random thing, like you said, with the Christmas lights or whatever it might be, the chit chat. Or your your kids, your, you know, what you have in common, you, you know, went to the same university. Actually, those things we call cross-cutting relationships are actually really, really important. And I think it helps you see other people as humans. And when you do that, everything else changes. You're no longer locked in that sort of life and death struggle of ideology. You're with people. And, and where there's a wonderful variation between people. So, I th- yeah, I think that Amanda's work is really inspiring. And amazingly enough, it really is actually a good summer read. Um, and, and that's why we decided to have it be our very first summer reading book ever. And it's, it's just very human and it's easy to read. And, you know, Amanda's really just spectacular and she's a, she writes beautifully. And I, I think it, it, it kind of touches us all where we are right now because it goes all, I mean, it talks about political things, but it, it zeroes in on, on, you know, conflicts in our life and the challenges that we have there as well. Yes. I love how she works in, you know, kind of follows the stories of particularly one main person, but other things mixed in there. And it feel uh, it is a nonfiction book, but sometimes I am listening and I feel like it's, it's entertaining as if it would be fiction because you're getting to know these characters, these real people out there. She, yeah, she weaves a story and the real people are very human and complex as we all are. Yes, yes. That was remarkable too, that um, people who are experts in, you know, getting along, finding common ground, mediation can still get into the trap. And so Indeed. I'll just leave that hanging because it's it's really fascinating. And it also makes us kind of like allows us to let ourselves off the hook a little bit like, okay, we're all susceptible to this. Now that I know that, what am I going to do about it? I think that's exactly right. I have a slide that in my presentations, it has parentheses, it says, if you are human, you do this. <laughs> and it's yes. really true. And one of the things that also struck me about the visit from Dr. Mason 
for the podcast that we're about to play is that he really, what he said was a warning to us. So this was three years ago. And he said that we in Northern Ireland who went through what they uh, euphemistically called the troubles, this is reminding us, what has happened in the United States now is reminding us of what has happened in Northern Ireland. And we know what it looks like when you get into it and we know how hard it is to get out of it. And, you know, I want to be here. Part of his work is being in the States, talking to groups, warning us about where we're heading. And so, you know, it's it's such an important time to have this conversation to try to really rally as a people to get on the better side of this. And I think that Dr. Mason's work and Amanda Ripley's book are extraordinary gifts in getting there. Right. Yes. Oh, I love this program with with Dr. Gary. You know, I was, I guess, a young adult. I don't know. I wasn't paying. I knew what was going on in Northern Ireland, but not anything about the details and certainly no appreciation for what they had to do to get out of it. And I feel like here, I feel like a lot of people of my generation, we really haven't had to do the hard work for our democracy, you know, and so it's easy to take it for granted. And so it was fascinating listening to him. And then also being at this moment where we're incredibly divided and realizing like, it's it's our work to do, we got it, we got to dig in and do it. And no one is going to save us from this. I do not think that there's a shortcut. And I think some certain amount of it does involve forgiveness and moving on and making a decision that we are going to, you know, there sort of is no way on the other side, but to see us all as a part of what moves forward. And we don't have to agree. We're not supposed to really agree, but we all have to be some part of it. Right. We all have to see ourselves in our American experiment somewhere. Yes, yes. It's so great. I'm so glad you recommended this book and now recommending it to the whole Village Square audience. And so do we have an an exciting announcement that we can share with them about why it's important to read this book over the summer? So we're delighted to announce that Amanda will be joining us for a digital event when we get back to our programming next fall, which will be late August, early September. We don't have the date locked down yet, but we would like everyone listening to make sure that they join us and that they can talk directly with Amanda about this incredible uh, piece of work. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Most of these programs where where you featured authors, you know, I haven't read the book by the time the program gets here. And then I'm all interested, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I got to go back and read that. But now I'm like, Oh, I get to read it first. And then any questions that I have, or just hear more about, you know, her story and, and writing this and bringing this great work to us. I'm so excited. Yeah, so so am I. So with that, should we hear from Dr. Gary? Sounds great to me. Take it from here, Gary. Here's Betsy Willett Zierden to introduce Reverend Dr. Gary Mason. On Good Friday, April 10th in 1998, after 800 years of conflict on the island of Ireland, the official negotiations to end the troubles concluded with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. This is the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. 
So it's appropriate that on this week when Jews celebrate the Passover and Christians look towards Easter, that we learn more about reconciliation and liberation through the experiences and wisdom of a true peacemaker. I had the honor of traveling with Bishop Ken Carter and a cohort of Methodist clergy to Northern Ireland to learn from my friend Gary, and I'm so grateful that he's here. On behalf of the rest of the God Squad and the Village Square, it's my pleasure in just a moment to introduce you to our special guest, the Reverend Dr. Mason. Gary holds a PhD in psychology from the University of Ulster. He completed his theological studies at Queen's University, and he holds a BA in business studies from the University of Ulster. He comes to us from Belfast, Northern Ireland, where he has been deeply involved in the peace process, first and foremost as a Methodist minister, working closely with Catholic clergy colleagues to bring together the deeply divided and segregated Republican and Loyalist communities. His organization, Rethinking Conflict, works locally, nationally, and internationally toward conflict transformation, peace building, and reconciliation. He's been honored by Queen Elizabeth at the East Belfast Mission and public recognition for the work he carried out there. It's my honor and pleasure to introduce Reverend Dr. Gary Mason. Betsy, thank you for your warm words of welcome. And it's nice to be with you here in Florida. I'm Always glad to be here around this time of year and to escape the tail end of those Irish winters. So it's nice to be with you. Today is like a good summer's day in the island of Ireland. I'm a child of conflict. I'm also an adult of conflict. As Betsy alluded to there in her introduction, the painful history of Ireland spills back literally to the 12th century. But the phase that affected my life was from 1969, literally up until the signing of the Good Friday Agreement on Good Friday, 1998. Northern Ireland, population-wise, is an incredibly small place. Uh, 1.5 to 1.7 million people. Uh, it wouldn't even be categorized as a large American city. But in that 30-year period of our civil war, or the troubles, as us Irish calls it, we have almost this ability to downplay incredibly difficult events. We had 47,000 injuries, 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 16,000 bombings, almost 4,000 dead, and 30,000 political prisoners. If that had happened in the United States, if I was to extrapolate those figures into your context, over a 30-year period, it would have meant 800,000 dead, more than your civil war, and 6.4 million political prisoners. So when I'm back home working in my own context, which I do between six to seven months a year, my main role is dealing with the legacy of the past. We're still a very deeply traumatized people, having lived through literally centuries of conflict. 
The Good Friday Agreement was really a masterpiece in political compromise. Eamon Malley, a well-known journalist back home, described it as a political miracle. The Senator George Mitchell, who chaired those talks, uh, was a master in negotiation, but after the talks were over, he said, I had to sit down. I felt tears welling up in my eyes. I was literally overcome with immense emotion. It's often highlighted that there are really three types of peace process in this world. The first one is Sri Lanka, uh, which really means that the government forces defeat the Tamil Tigers and they bring about peace. I suppose the postscript on the letter you may want to say is, will the sons, daughters, or grandchildren of the Tamil Tigers ever rise again? None of us in this room tonight can answer that question. The second type of peace process is often called the South African peace process, which really allowed colonial regime change at the top. But in reality, still a lot of economic dividend in that peace process needs to take place on the ground. The Good Friday Agreement was described really as a second preference peace process which simply meant neither of the warring factions totally got their own way. So it was a win-win scenario for all sides. So literally within the unionist loyalist community, within the republican nationalist community, the kind of protagonists were able to leave the room being able to have got enough in the bag to sell it to their own side. So in reality, it was a masterpiece in compromise. Back home, we often talk about the political peace process versus the social peace process. And I often remind folk as a colleague of mine, John Brewer, who's a professor in sociology at Queen's University, says that primarily politicians assume that once the deal is done, societal healing automatically follows. And yet in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. So the social peace process involves people like you, people like me, clergy, academics, uh, NGOs, uh, women's groups, social activists, who really are the social glue that hold that peace process together. And in reality, the problem is that so many times that societal healing is either ignored by negotiators in a political peace process, or they assume, as I mentioned, it'll just simply follow automatically after the deal is done. So once the helicopter takes off from the lawn of the White House or Downing Street in London or from Paris or Jerusalem or Ramallah, the peace will automatically bed in. It's a rather naive assumption that once you sort out problematic politics, societal healing will occur Pretty simply, it doesn't. People often ask me as I travel, Gary, was yours a religious war? And I often remind them, well, in the context that we were not fighting about doctrinal issues, but I often suggest very strongly that what I call a toxic theology or a toxic religion literally watered the fertile soil which allowed people in our context to have a incredibly difficult debate and war over land and 
identity. And I must say as a clergy person, sometimes I struggle when the church doesn't own up when it gets it wrong. I often look back and I lead tours in the Middle East and also in Europe, looking at the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And I often remind people, if you were to look at the second chapter of Mein Kampf, I mean, Hitler very clearly says, today I believe, I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator by defending myself against the Jews. And interestingly, a scholar in highlighting and deepening this a little bit more said this. The missionaries of Christianity had said, in effect, you have no right to live among us as Jews. The secular ruler said, you Jews have no rights to live among us. And Hitler and the Nazis took it that a little bit further when they said, you Jews have no right to live. So the German Nazis were not discarding the past. They were simply building upon it. They did not begin a development. They actually completed it. And looking around this room, most of us remember the end of apartheid in the early 1990s. And you don't need me to remind you, it was the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa that theologically propped up the system of apartheid. So I think it's crucial for those of us who are religious leaders, when the church gets it wrong, to spill into that theological concept called confession and lament rather than cover up or deny what we have done. It's interestingly, Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, said this. On one point, and it is a substantial one, the critics of religion are right. Religion has done harm. It has led to crusades jihads, inquisitions, and pogroms. Sachs continues, it has shed the blood of human sacrifice in the name of high ideals. People have hated in the name of the God of love, practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion, waged war in the name of the God of peace, and killed in the name of the God of life. And as Sachs rightly says, These are undeniable facts, and they are terrifying. But interestingly, the great believers have always known this. I mean, Pascal said, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who was born in Belfast, and if you remember, came to faith as an agnostic in 1929 with a wonderful quotation, I was dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, perhaps the most reluctant convert in all of England. But C.S. Lewis said this, I think we must fully face the fact that when Christianity does not make a man very much better, It makes him very much worse. And Sachs commenting on that says this. This happens not because religion is religion, but because human beings are 
human beings, not angels, and certainly not God. And then he uses this amazing phrase. He says, religion has power. It bonds people as a group. It moves people to act. It changes lives. But whatever has power can be used, misused, and abused. And he suggests very clearly, religion is like fire. It warms, but it also burns. And we are the guardians of that flame. So it begs me to ask the question, if you're in this building tonight or listening in, if you're a person of faith, how are you using your religion to warn people or to scorch or burn people? Let me highlight for a moment what I'm calling the power of words. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who is a member Walk with Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement. He was a brilliant Jewish theologian. He said this, It was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. Okay? It was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. So I want to say to all of us, and to me, how we speak is incredibly important. And it's interesting, the Jewish sages of another generation said this, evil speech kills three people. The one who says it, the one who accepts it, and the one about whom it is said. And in my context growing up, As one theologian who has long since left planet Earth said, most people in our churches did not have guns in their hands, but they most certainly had them in their hearts. Most people in our churches did not have guns in their hands, but they most certainly had them in their hearts. And Jonathan Sachs commenting on this whole concept of politics, says we can see the politics in the West have become more divided, more abrasive, and more extreme. And he talks about for at least a half a century, we're focused on the market and on the state while ignoring the third dimension that he calls very, very clearly the whole concept of society. And he talks about bringing in a third concept that is called the covenant. So instead of us continually insisting on the state contract or the market contract, he says, for those of us who live on this planet, we need a covenant because a covenant is about identity. So social contracts creates a state, but a social covenant creates a Society. So a covenant is all of us know in this building, those of us who are in relationships, those of us who are married. A covenant is about a relationship, not about abrasive politics. How do we create that in the West? Let me highlight just for a moment what I'm calling the power of memory. 
United Nations Handbook on Reconciliation talks that how some post-conflict societies spill into what they call a form of amnesia. And they suggest that amnesia is the enemy of reconciliation because it refuses victims a public acknowledgement of their pain. It invites offenders to take the path of denial, but also deprives future generations of the opportunity to understand and learn from the past. But everything I've just said there comes with a very serious health warning. Let me tell you why. Memory is a two-edged sword. It can play a critical role in making reconciliation sustainable, but it also has the capacity to hinder reconciliation processes. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I visited with a friend in Atlanta, the Cyclorama, which, as many of you know, depicts Sherman's burning of Atlanta. And as I sat through that uh, 360 degrees panoramic view of the city of Atlanta, Ablaze, I walked out of this theatre with my friend, and he turned to me and he said, Gary, isn't it awful what those damn Yankees did to the city of Atlanta? And I turned to him and I says, Michael, tell me, how, how long ago was that? And he says, around about 150 years. And I said, and you, you struggle with us Irish with our memories going back 800 years. You Americans, you ain't much better. So how do we deal with the whole power of memory? I want to suggest there can be what I'm calling the danger of too much memory. Too great a concern with remembering the past means that the divisions and conflicts of old never die, the wounds are never healed, the past continues to dominate the present, and hence to some degree determines the future. So memory can be incredibly selective. It can also be manipulated and abused. I do some work at Emory University in Atlanta, and uh, last uh, August, a student asked me a question, because you Americans were in that debate, what are we going to do with all these monuments? And so a young student said, well, Gary, you've grown up in a context with historical baggage on your gable walls, uh, murals, statues, dominating the landscape. What should we do? And I said, well, it seems you've like three options. The first one is keep the monuments up, have some historical narrative or marker, some explanatory process of why this is here in the first place. Uh, the second concept, I think, is some people are saying, let's just put them into museums. But I was saying, look at the size of some of these monuments. You'd probably need a structural engineer to remove the wall of some of these museums to actually get them into the building in the first place. And then the third option was, uh, just put them into some uh, Confederate cemetery. Uh, the people that like those kind of things, they can go and pay homage there. So she says, what would you do? I said, I would do nothing for two years. And I would force American society to have a reason structured, engaging debate about the past. Rather than just continue to throw what I sort of see uh, verbal hand grenades from one side to the other, there needs to be some process of engagement or what we call back home in our Irish context, uncomfortable 
conversations. So as I say, their memory can also be manipulated in so, so many ways. The writer David Reef, who has written a book there a couple of years ago, and he did a little article in The Guardian, a, a British newspaper uh, printed in London, and he called the article The Cult of Memory, When History Does More Harm Than Good. And then he tells this story where he was in a room in the early 1990s, as Yugoslavia was literally disintegrating, and he left the room in a Sir Brownard, after him, put a little piece of paper in his hand. He opened the piece of paper. It said the date 1453, which was the year that Orthodox Constantinople fell to the Muslim Ottomans. And he went back into the room and asked for an explanation. The irony is, dates like that were used 600 years later to justify the murder and carnage of tens and tens of thousands of people. We often talk in our Irish context about the source of Irish history. How we constantly pick at these sores, at these wounds, and we never, never allow them to heal. And so David Reef plays about with the phrase, the terror of remembering versus the terror of forgetting. And he says there may be cases in which it is possible that forgetting may do an injustice to the past, but remembering can do an injustice to the present. He says there's no simple categorical answer. But in our context there, one of our historians once said, tongue-in-cheek, he said, I think we should build a monument to amnesia in Ireland and then forget where we put it. And in our Irish context, we are obsessed with dates. I remember as a little boy, growing up watching those sort of orange order parades. I grew up within that British Protestant Unionist loyalist tradition. And as a kind of six-year-old kid, I remember graphically seeing this uh, very colourful banner of Protestants literally up to their necks in water, about to be drowned by Catholics pushed onto the water. As a six-year-old boy, I mean, psychologically, historically, I didn't understand all the complexities and the ramifications theologically, psychologically, sociologically, politically around this banner. But it made me realize, can you trust those Catholics? They seem to drown Protestants. But on the other side of the fence, the little Catholic six-year-old kid. He was also seeing his banners of Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan, the Lord Protector, sweeping through southern Ireland and his troops ramming spears through the chests of Catholics. And so his narrative was, Protestants stick spears through the chests of Catholics. And as we often say in Ireland, Long after the quarrel has stopped making any sense, the memory of the grudge endures. I remember a couple of years ago reading an article that a theologian in Upper West Side in Manhattan in New York City had written. 
And then he had this little phrase where he said, no one in the United States wants to talk about the legacy of slavery. And I sort of lifted the phrase out and said, there's a fascinating S-word, i.e. the S-word slavery. I says, let me tell you about my S-word. My S-word is called sectarianism. And as a little boy, growing up in Ireland and Belfast, no one politically or religiously wanted to deal with the scourge of sectarianism. And so we ended up with a 30-year civil war. I said, I'm not suggesting that America is moving towards a civil war, but I am suggesting that you need to have a reasoned, constructive conversation about the past. Because in our context, we didn't have the ability, the courage to grapple with it. As Betsy alluded to, hopefully, with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, it is our belief, in the words of John Hume, the well-known nationalist politician, that the gun is finally out of Irish politics. But it took us a long, painful journey to do so. And I think for all of us, having these conversations is so, so critical. And obviously I'm coming at this very much from a kind of Christian perspective, a faith-based perspective. But I've often said as I look at the model of Jesus in the New Testament, who had so many conversations with so many different people with whom he disagreed. And my mantra has often been engagement is not endorsement. To engage with a human being does not mean I necessarily have to agree with their position, but I most certainly want to understand their position. So now in my role, I spent my time still in the island of Ireland, doing some work in the United States, but also some work in the Middle East, where I work closely with Israelis and Palestinians. We've had 500 Israelis and Palestinians in Belfast in the last five or six years, not saying to them, the Good Friday Agreement is the panacea for the ills of the Middle East, because it isn't. But we're saying, here's some of the things we got right. Here's some of the things we got wrong. Because interestingly, and just let me conclude with this, Way, way back in the early 1990s, there were three conflicts bubbling on planet Earth. There were others, but, but the biggies was really the Irish, South African, and the Middle East. And most people assumed that with the Oslo Accords, the Israelis and Palestinians were over the line. South Africa was painfully moving in the right direction, and us sort of British-Irish were lagging well behind. Now, the old British bulldog Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher called the Iron Lady simply said, the Irish problem is completely intractable. They were both wrong. But it came about through risk-taking, through understanding, through listening, through engagement, and allowing faith to spill into the public space. And for us, 20 years later, we still have a journey to go. We're not completely there yet. We're still a deeply segregated society. But in the words of John Hume, we hope that the gun is finally, finally out of Harry's politics. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. 
It's now my pleasure to introduce my fellow God Squad members and ask them to join us on the stage. First is the co-founder of the God Squad and the Village Square Chairman of the Board, Rabbi Jack Romberg of Temple Israel. The only other member of the original God Squad, he's been here all seven, I can only claim six, is Pastor Derek McGee of the Bible-based church. And, and our newest and almost youngest member, First Baptist Church pastor, the Reverend Josh Hall. And we regret that Father Tim Holida from St. Thomas More Cathedral is unable to be with us tonight due to Maundy Thursday services. And before I sit down, I'll let Gary begin to speak again to this question. I know you've come many times to America. What has changed since your last visit? What have you noted? There's no question as an outside observer that uh, people seem to be avoiding the conversation around politics. Um, And you know, in staying here, I have stayed in the houses of people who are Republicans. I've stayed in the houses of people who are Democrats. And I just... I think it's important that people begin to hear each other in a meaningful, gracious, understanding way. Uh, during the whole conversation around the Parkland shootings, I watched the uh, debate in front of all the students, and where Marco Rubu, the Republican, said, we need to stop taking all our worldview just from CNN and Fox News. We need to hear one another as human beings. And the thing I want to be saying as an outsider, not coming with any prescription because we have had a painful protracted conflict for so, so long. But what we had to do was to listen to the other, understand the other person, and ask the question, if I had been born in that other one's world, what choices would I have made? And so I would just, I guess we want to appealing as as a person who's been part of this nation so, so many ways, people tease me, it's my second home, that we need to stop throwing verbal hand grenades at one another. Uh, we need to listen to one another. And I think particularly in a context of faith, in all our traditions, in both the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition, it does say something about how we speak and how we listen. Uh, in my context, Jesus reminds us, you're not just going to be judged by your actions, you're also going to be judged by your words. And I saw too many poisonous words in my situation that literally did result in people's deaths. I mean, I saw school friends of mine die through listening to bad words. Well, we understand that reconciliation presupposes confrontation, your words. (laughs) But I think what we often don't do is understand the importance of the confrontations that we have within our own uh, groups. So I'd like to ask the God Squad to um, consider how well are you doing in your own congregations talking about differing opinions? We're working, we're working hard, and I think that uh, uh, within, not just within Temple Israel, but within the progressive Jewish world in general, when I say progressive, I mean the non-Hasidic, non-ultra-Orthodox world, there, there is a divide. Um, there is a definite group 
that is very dedicated to, um, you know, the current political leaders, leadership. And then there is a group that's very opposed. And it is difficult to try and bring them together. Uh, so the conflict that we have and the conflict that I have as a rabbi of the temple is how, how much do I advocate from a moral perspective in a way that I know certain people are going to object to? And how much do I just be quiet uh, to <laughs> allow people to have their feelings? Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that my, my tendency is not to be so quiet. Well, surprise, surprise, Jack. <laughs> and you're bold. You're bold and you take risks, and I respect that. What kind of internal conversations are causing division or maybe are already based on division, Josh or oh, Derek? I'd say with my, where, I think where we struggle, we've got a pretty diverse congregation, but sometimes it feels like as the temperature goes up in the national political climate, it goes up in our internal conversations as well, to, to the point that you were, were referencing that they're, they're echoing the talking points that they've heard from the, the news or from the politicians, from the, the crossfire style shows, instead of finding their talking points from scripture, you know, not to, overly spiritualize what's going on here, but they're, they're letting that lead into how they interact with even fellow believers instead of having unity in the church that then spills out into society is even within the church, there might be things that distinguish us, but we shouldn't let them divide us. Right. You know, we should, we should demonstrate that unity instead of letting the divisions from outside in society creep into the church. Yeah. We, some of the social issues, uh, seem to be given more importance than our sacred doctrines. Derek? And, and I, would, I would segue from both of my colleagues here in that um, in a previous Faithful Friday, Jack kind of alluded to this, and I think it's very important, is that we're now allowing the media to control us versus our own faith beliefs. Uh, and in that regard, so in our, in our context at our church, um, we have these conversations regularly be because you know, just sound bites here and there. I try to never allow the media to dictate what I preach from the pulpit. At the same point, I'm also not going to allow the chance to miss an opportunity to bring up something. Parkland's a good example. Charleston, South Carolina, the police, the shooting in the, in the church, that those type of opportunities in my context are important to talk about and bring them out because if you don't deal with them, if it, it, it become, you suppress it, it becomes volcanic at some point. Um, and then there are individuals that I pastor on the south side of Tallahassee um, who feel like they're disenfranchised and they're hopeless. And so the victim mentality becomes a thing. And so you have to have that conversation and be willing to have that conversation in hopes of pulling people out of a, a mode and a mindset that keeps them down. Um, Gary has said that uh, really clergy and faith communities need to <laughs> spill out into the messy public spaces. And when you spill out into the messy public spaces, there's risk. What are some of the risks that the clergy took in Northern Ireland? I know that there is a lot of hesitancy among many clergy leaders to get involved at all. But those that finally stepped up, what were the risks they were taking? Yeah. I suppose, I mean, I've often said I think it's easy for us as clergy to be what I call chaplains to our own tribe. Okay. Hmm. So a number of us really in the late 80s, early 90s, and literally right through until today, began engaging with those who were politically motivated to use violence to pursue their political goals. 
And I've often had this mantra, Betsy, and uh, it's quite gender-based, and the women will smile when I say this, but if you lock 40 men in a room, listening to their own reassuring voices, it's a recipe for disaster. And basically, we had sizable groups of men who had taken up arms to pursue either a United Ireland or the link with the Union, and they were only hearing their own worldview. They were not hearing what I would call, in my context, a gospel moral framework. So we had to do what were attractive alternatives to pursuing political violence. I mean, it was a long, protracted process. Uh, we're still having some of those conversations even today. What, what were you risking, though? That's what, because I'm going to yeah, ask, I'm going to ask yeah, you guys yeah. that question next. When you're propelled into that messy yeah. public space, what kind of risks were you taking? I mean, in your case, maybe being blown up. <laughs> yeah. In my case, not so much. Maybe people leave the church. Yeah. But please answer that. And well, I guess, I mean, to give you an example, July, I think, 2001, we were just over the Good Friday Agreement. And not all these militia groups had embraced this with open arms. Right. And the British Secretary of State, uh, who was part of Tony Blair's cabinet, Dr. John Reid, Scottish guy, came to meet at my church building. Uh, 40 people who had been involved in really leading political violence within that sort of Protestant unionist loyalist community. And uh, some of my church, it was meant to be secret, but of course somebody leaked it. So by the time midday came, you had cameras outside the church. So, so my church members are coming home from work, seeing all these well-known uh, advocates of violence spilling into their church building. Uh, so it was a very, it was a difficult week, mm. month, maybe several months. But a year after that, we had gone from something like two to 300 pipe bombings to five. But it wasn't an overnight phenomenon, so you really had to ride the storm. But as I said earlier, you know, my model, obviously, in that Christian context is that model of Jesus, right. who engaged with every person, did not endorse their worldview, but tried to redirect them into a different way and model of living. And certainly took risks. Yeah, to put it my way. <laughs> so, what, in your context? So, um, recently I, I was, uh, I'm starting to clean out my office at home a little bit, and I came across an article written just a month after I got to town and began to serve as Rabbi at Temple Israel. I think it was August uh, of uh, 2001 that the article was written. And the reporter asked me, what was my focus going to be? And I said, I'm going to focus inside the congregation. I'm not going to worry about what's going on in the community. I'm just going to focus what's in the congregation to teach Judaism to my congregants to really raise you up. You were going to play it safe, in other words. Well, I, 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 I was going to try and rebuild the congregation in the context of what was going on in the Jewish world in general and, and to carry that out. And then 9-11 happened. And... And I have to say that Brant Copeland, pastor of First Presbyterian, called me to be on a panel. This is weeks after I get to town and just a few weeks maybe after I said this interview. And he called me to be on a panel with uh, Muslims and, uh, and other and Christians. And so we gathered and I began a path that night that put me into the community. And um, so the risk, I guess, was... Did I really fulfill what I promised my congregation I was going to do? In a way, no, but in a far greater way, probably. Certainly sounds like you followed your call, though, your calling. Yes. So I'll, I'll take it. 
you you referenced to it probably jokingly, Betsy, but you you suffered the loss of parishioners, no um, joke, of, of money, <laughs> um, and 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 so it's important to understand that. But but those matters that that only matters if that's the motivation. Mm-hmm. The motivation is people in seats um, to make you feel good about yourself for a big big offering at the end of the, the, end of the day when you deposit. But it, none of those things matter to me. Um, I think the greatest thing that that you you suffer to lose is the sphere of influence is that you that you forget that there are individuals who need you to be out there. There's a local pastor here who has this phrase, not pulpit to pew, but pulpit to pavement, meaning that we should as clergy, we should be relevant beyond the four walls of the temple or the church. We should want to be out there. I'm a believer that if 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 the faith based community um, gets back to where it needs to be. When Dr. Martin Luther King was leading civil rights, they would meet in the church and have meetings there and strategies there. Then they would go out and do what they had to do. There was something about coming together in that regard. And whenever clergy become so worried about what happens in the temple or in their church only, um, it, it's dangerous because now you leave the world to dictate how everything else ought to get done. I guess the one thing that strikes me is that there's that sense in which, yeah, we, t- we take risks if you take bold, strong stands, you know, on certain issues that, especially depending on the makeup of your congregation, that could be not just divisive, but that could also be, um, make it more difficult for this, this sheep that you have been entrusted to, to trust you as their shepherd. And so I think, you know, as much as it's, especially in a context like this, considered admirable to take those bold stands, I do think you do have to weigh What's the impact that I'm going to make? That there are certain issues that, of course, you need to speak to, and it's not, um, I'm not giving cover to cowardice, but I'm saying you do, as a, as a clergy, you do have to think through. If you're weighing in on every hot topic because it comes up and you're tweeting something out or you're throwing those hand grenades on Facebook, you know, there's somebody that might be looking up to you that's on the other side of that, and now you just disparage them by how you've categorized or characterized their position. So I think it, it is helpful too to still triage those issues <coughs> that matter and make sure that you're not taking something that's, you know, tertiary and treating it as primary, remembering that the, the unique thing that I can speak into is their spiritual life and, you know, in our context, following Christ and what that looks like. If I undermine that because I'm out speaking on every little political issue, I haven't done them any favors. I hear you. That's wisdom. You guys both look like you want to say something. Well, yeah, Go. I, I think that besides the issue of risk, I, I have to really say something about the reward. And uh, one of the things that Gary said when he was speaking earlier that just resonated with me is the necessity for uh, creating meaningful conversations. And what is one of the rewards that I feel? Well, I'm sitting next to a dear friend, Derek, who is one of the rewards that I've gotten. And just earlier today, Derek and I were having a conversation about how we have to push forward a meaningful conversation about race because we had this program at your church a few weeks back, but both of us felt, and I don't mean to speak for you, Derek, you'll speak for yourself, but both of us, I think, felt that it didn't go far enough, oh, that 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 there are things not, not that hour. were left unsaid and yes, things that I have agree. to be discussed and things that have to be put out mm-hmm. And the benefit is the relationships that we have now formed uh, between not just us, but also with Father Tim is the opportunity that we can get out there and we can start to have these conversations and we can model these conversations and be blunt and honest with how difficult they are. All right. 
Uh, you, um, Gary, had said that the stories we tell, the history that we live out of, uh, really shapes, right? Shapes who we are. And um, I'm wondering, guys, what kind of stories do our faith communities tell that actually contribute to the trauma in our world? Can you own something from your theological background? That's is something I do this lecture sometimes in the United yeah. States called When the Curtains Are Closed. Mm. It's okay for us tonight to have these conversations in the public space. We're being filmed. We're probably all pretty ultra-cautious to a degree. The question I want to ask all of us, including me, what conversations do you have behind closed doors? And sometimes the conversations you have with your own family and friends is much more key than the conversations we have in the public space. So people have said to me, in my context, I was taught to despise Catholics from the day and hour I was born. Or Protestants, or African Americans, or whites. It was interesting that when Nelson Mandela left Robben Island, he was sitting in a car looking at the prison warden who had guarded him for 27 years. He said, I realized I had one or two choices. One bullet, one white settler, or to create the Rainbow Nation. He chose the latter because he was a man of courage and he gave leadership. And I think as well, Betsy, in the whole concept was Oz Guinness who said, if Moses had have taken a straw pole in the desert, he was an immense baller. Yeah. <laughs> so he was. So we need to lead as well. Right. Penciling in, you know, what Joshua said there as well. We don't want to be reckless people getting involved in every chaotic mess that some of it that's going to pass by tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But what I call long-term prophetic issues within our Jewish and Christian tradition, we need to wrestle with those. Well, one of the stories that we tell in the mainline denominations is that we are, we are part of the heroic effort that took place during the civil rights movement. And while I think that that's true of many of our churches, I also think it's been sort of a, a place of comfort that we lean on rather than having it propel us forward. So that's what I'm talking about. What kind of stories might you be telling yourselves that are actually hindering you from leading con your congregations into uh, a, a new space of greater reconciliation and conversation? I'm not thinking of any, so I must like them all. You, okay. <laughs> well, well, That's you may not have any. No, I'm sure we do. I think we've all got blinders. Well, well what does the black church say? That's not helpful to themselves. I, I mean, to themselves, I think it's it's the it's the it's the mindset of disenfranchisement that you know less than and things of that nature. I think the I think the biggest thing, honestly, that's being said is really more within Christian dome than it is outside of it. I'll give you a great example, and so we're having a frank conversation here. But you know, there there are things that occur in 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 the political spectrum that the president talks a lot about: make America great again. And that's the catchphrase now. But if you talk to any black American, the question then asks, when was it ever great for us? And so in that regard, those conversations that, that are had that that I guess would, would hold us back is is the inability to, to forward think, to be futuristic and realize um, that the gospel that I believe in um, actually includes us in it, not excludes us out of it. Okay. 
There's definitely a, a storyline in my world, in the Jewish world, and of course, everybody here knows it. It's the story of the Holocaust and the story of anti-Semitism through the centuries. There's nothing untrue about it, but when we have discussions and, and lessons about the Holocaust, what sometimes happens in my world in the wrong direction is the focus becomes strictly on this can never happen again to us. It needs to also be, yes, it can never happen again to us, but we have to be willing to put ourselves forward to make sure that what we're learning about our past and the oppression is not going to happen to anybody else. That's the hang-up with uh, conversations in the Jewish world on the Holocaust. The tipping point. We talked briefly uh, earlier today about the tipping point, and, and Gary, you used a phrase. If you could share that and then maybe help us understand how you move past that, like how you push it over. Yeah. I suppose for us, I mean, the early 1990s were quite critical in a sense because there were a lot of back channels happening. Uh, also, the role of the American administration and leading up to the Good Friday Agreement was crucial. But we had the phrase that was coined was a mutually hurting stalemate, okay? So everyone in the island of Ireland, particularly in Northern Ireland, were realizing, look, violence is not going to succeed. There was still a number wanted to move that forward and believe it could, but, you know, the British Army weren't going to defeat the IRA, the IRA were not going to defeat the British Army, the Lawless groupings were not going to defeat the IRA. So there really was a kind of tipping point, to use your phraseology there, Betsy, where we can go on killing each other for another 50 or 60 years, or we can begin a model that allows us to share space together. So in reality, the Good Friday Agreement was a masterpiece in political compromise. No one felt humiliated. All the political negotiators were able to leave the room knowing there was enough to sell to their own constituency. So in other words, no community felt humiliated. So if we were to consider a mutually hurting stalemate in our city, the city of Tallahassee, and we only have a few minutes, but each of you should have time to answer this. What is the mutually hurting stalemate? Is there something that we can all agree is painful, not right? If there is, what would it be? It's uh, um, economic uh, segregation and still too much racial segregation. I would say poverty. I would say poverty. Too many children going to school hungry and going to bed hungry. Um, and the appearance that we just don't care. Yeah. I, I mean, don't disagree with this. I'm trying to think of something that likens to what Gary was saying, where the, you've got opposing forces and neither of them is winning. And they both eventually realize if we continue this way, we're just worse off and we've just wasted 20 or 30 more years. And to that regard, nothing, you know, because I don't, I don't know that anyone feels like they're on the pro-poverty side, yeah. you know, but there are forces that aren't helping and those that are trying to bid it, it's harder to think of one that it just feels as you know clearly clearly drawn lines where neither wants to budge I, I at was, least locally i was thinking of the people coming around the parkland students mothers and families that have experienced gun violence and the the movement that kind of was created around that mutual pain mutual pain that they had received in different ways in different places mm -hmm. Well, if we were to create a 
new social <coughs> contract in two minutes. <laughs> what, the, what, would that, what, what would that look like? Uh, who wants to answer? <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you. <laughs> Come on, you got two minutes. I think Beth Simmons in that article that I'd read in uh, Christianity Today a few weeks ago, it's be a mainstream sort of evangelical magazine in the States, and the writer was saying, uh, the state of our politics reflects the state of our souls. Mm. You know? uh, so I just think we need to hear that. The other thing I would say is, you know, don't let the temporal dictate the eternal. Beautiful. Okay? Uh, politics is important. I thank God for many politicians that took risks, but I still want to say in my faith context, this stuff is temporal. There is an eternal dynamic as well that I still... You know, old A.W. Tozer, the evangelical mystic there who pastored the People's Church in Toronto once said, Lord, keep me eternity conscious. So let's take a long view in this as well. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a long, it's a long process as we live on this planet trying to reshape it for the better. So for Christians, we lean into the kingdom of God. And you have a phrase, is it tikkun olam? Tikkun olam, repair of the world. And I would just add on to what Gary said, which I think is beautifully said, add to that, and let's lessen the uh, focus on self and increase the focus on our community. Right. I think we're done. Thank you to our God Squad and to all of you for joining us for the broadcast of the Village Square God Squad at Night event. So on behalf of the God Squad, the Village Square, Leon County, and WFSU, thank you again for joining us, and good night. Hi again, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this throwback program with the God Squad and special guest, Reverend Dr. Gary Mason. Thanks to all of them for participating and sharing their wisdom with us. If you'd like more of this fantastic program, you can actually watch the Q&A that took place with the audience right after the panel discussion. It's in WFSU's video archives, and we have a direct link to that on our show notes page for this episode at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. And now that we're all extra motivated to tackle conflict in a healthy way in our own lives, here's just a few more minutes from my chat with Liz about the book we're reading this summer that can help us move from high conflict to healthy conflict. Remember, the book is called High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out by Amanda Ripley. And so here we are jumping into the chat with Liz, where I'm sharing about one of the people featured in the book, Gary Friedman. I will tell you one other thing I noticed that I just thought was interesting was the principles of unity that Gary Friedman introduced when he started leading the, was it a town council, city council, whatever it was. And he started, he introduced those principles of unity, which remind me of the Village Square's table rules. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, how, this is how we talk to each other. And it is just another reminder that these conversations can be had, but to make them work, they have to be intentional and you have to, you have to plan out how you're going to get through the, the tough stuff. Yeah, I, I think so. It's funny that we get a bunch of requests for our, for our local color rules and they must feel kind of fresh or something, but actually one of the first rules in everything we do is the goal isn't to agree. 
It's to disagree and keep talking. And I think that's something that we kind of lose sight of. It is, I mean, we actually really are supposed to agree. I mean, if you think of just the whole world as being this giant elephant, we've got our hands on different parts of the elephant. We're talking about different things and thinking about different things. And that will continue forever, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's not going to go away. And that's, you know, kind of the beauty and the challenge of a democracy. And, you know, then we sort of negotiate how we feel like we can move forward together. And we learn things from people we don't agree with. I wouldn't trade anything for the years that I have spent stretching out of my political comfort zone. And I I actually still believe most of the things policy-wise that I did at the very beginning. I just have a much more dimensional understanding of them. And I empathize with people who don't agree with my politics because I see what they're talking about. Right. And look, you've complicated the narrative. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what that would, that is. And if you talk to people and listen to people, you don't even have to know the term or what you're doing. It's just natural. Right. Because we are much more complex. We have it's this tendency to not be seeing ourselves as full people. You know, whole people, I have this great quote. It's from, actually, I have a great quote about questions first. And it's from John O'Donohue, Walking on the Pastures of Wonder. One of the most exciting and energetic forms of thought is the question. I always think that the question is like a lantern. It illuminates new landscapes and new areas as it moves. And then another quote that I have that I just love So this is my favorite quote on complicating the narrative. It's from Maria Popova, who writes the newsletter Brain Pickings, and you can sign up to get it delivered to your inbox on Sundays. To reclaim the beauty of the multitudes we each contain, we must break free of the prison of our fragments and meet one another as whole persons, full of wonder, unblunted by identity, template, and expectation. Oh, wow. Yeah, we just we we I maybe to simplify yeah, make our our view of things simple, we see people so two-dimensionally, if even that. So, I think that it's really all about seeing whole people and that naturally complicates the narrative. Right, definitely. I love that word expectations in there too. I know I've getting I get in trouble on a regular basis when, you know, I have an expectation of someone <laughs> and it's really not appropriate. <laughs> I think we all do. That's very human. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, thank you again, Liz. Thanks for sharing this with us. And I, it's a great, I'm a third through and I just, I think it's a brilliant recommendation. It's really helpful. Excellent. I can't wait till fall and we can all talk about it as a community. All right. Thanks, Liz. Bye, Vanessa. All right, you guys, don't forget the author of High Conflict, Amanda Ripley, will be joining us this fall. So get your read on this summer. And if you're in Tallahassee, you can pick up a copy at Midtown Reader. Or no matter where you are, High Conflict is also available in audio format. That's it for today. We have a great lineup of programs coming out for you on Village Squarecast. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. To stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square, sign up for our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to God Squad with Dr. Gary Mason. 
Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Squarecast.